Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Chris Maybe. It's so great to see so many of you here on this first Sunday of 2023. For those of you who don't know me or might be visiting, my name is Chris and I'm the assistant pastor here. For today's message on this first Sunday of 2023, Pastor Dave invited me to prepare this psalm for our consideration. I'm really glad he did. For in this short 14-verse song, which I just read, we have a treasure trove of truth, wisdom, and peace-provoking invitation, which I hope blesses you as much in receiving the message in the Word of God as it did me in my preparation. But before we start studying this wonderful passage together, let me ask you, did any of you make any new or different New Year's resolutions this year? New Year's resolutions, we know about them, right? We've done it in the past. I don't, we don't typically do this every year, but Kim, Lauren, and Kendall and I on Christmas dinner a week ago today sat and talked about what happened in 2022 and made some resolutions for 2023. You know, good things to think about, like changing habits that are unproductive or committing to our communities, our families at home, maybe committing to the church. You know, and you might have done the same this year or in the past, you know like sleeping less maybe, working more, recommitting to school and getting better grades, spending less time watching TV or engaging your social media. Maybe it's traveling, right? COVID's kind of kept a lot of people down and in their homes. Maybe you want to travel in 2023. You know, or maybe, uh, maybe if you're Luke Shooter, you finally committed to loading the dishwasher more productively, right? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. New Year's resolutions... Good things. Inside joke. If, if you were here in the last couple of weeks, Pastor Dave would have made that clear. Uh, good things to commit to. Good, good things to commit to in our pursuit of a wonderful new year, right? Well, friends, Psalm 19 transcends our current cultural moment and the pursuits we might have seeking the good life, evoking not only admiration and, lo- and awe for God's creation and His Word, but also provoking a personal response that leads to the very flourishing we all desire as we seek to be authentic with God and ourselves in this year. What's the greatest New Year's resolution one could have? Friends, when we commit to following the Word of God out of our love for Jesus Christ and the redemption that only He can provide, we find true freedom and real peace in being obedient to God. Psalm 19 encourages God's people to be resolved to love and follow His law in three voices. Number one, the voice of creation in paradox. Number two, the voice of the Word in perfection. Number three, the voice of the sinner in prayer. Now in the order in which we encounter them in the voices in the text, the first, the voice of creation in paradox. You know, Psalm 19 is structured simply enough, this short 14-verse psalm is really a song that gives us, tells a story of how God communicates to us with two different voices in two separate ways, right? Which greatly illuminate one another and us. 
For God speaks to all human beings through what He has made. Back to the text, Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving His chamber like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. This general revelation or God revealing Himself to us through what He has made or nature, right? And there's many, there's many famous voices, both Christian and non-Christian, that acknowledge or agree with the psalmist here, right? My brothers and sister and I were blessed to grow up with parents that loved to boat. If you like boating, we did, I do. And so we spent many summer nights on the water or on the islands of western Lake Erie. And when we were on the lake, for whatever reason, we loved to sing John Denver folk songs. <laughs> John Denver folk songs. It was fun. It was really fun. Many nice, wonderful memories. One of my favorites speaks of this voice of creation. You may recall the fourth stanza of the now 50-year-old song. Rocky Mountain Heights, 50 years old. That's... Wow. Listen to these words. Now he walks in quiet solitude, the forests and the streams, seeking grace in every step he takes. His sight is turned inside himself to try and understand the serenity of a clear blue mountain, mountain lake and the Colorado Rocky Mountain High. I've seen it rain and fire in the sky. Talk to God and listen to the casual reply. Rocky Mountain High. You know, for those of you who like to study history, other ancient voices, you may recall Joseph Addison's hymn. He was a writer, hymn, hymn writer, and he published news pieces in London, England in the 18th century in the newspaper called The Spectator. You might have heard or read. These, these are his words from 1712. What though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice, utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shined. The hand that made thee is divine. Famous voices over the course of history who acknowledge God's nonverbal revelation to us in what He has made. I mean, have you ever wondered why there's day and night? We know what causes it, but why is there day and night? Really interesting to try and ponder that, right? And, and we might have, you know, if we've been around the Bible or studied the Bible at all, or you've been to church, you might, you know, there's a biblical warrant to answer the question symbolically, right? I mean, lightness and day is good, darkness and night is bad. But the psalmist employs the concept here literally to illustrate the magnitude of God's creation. For if there wasn't darkness, think about it, if there wasn't darkness, we wouldn't be able to see the stars and the moon and the celestial beings and the stars. We wouldn't be able to ponder the extent of God's universe that he's created, right? And the psalmist tells us that throughout the earth, time, and space of the created order, it recounts or declares to us just how glorious God is, whose handiwork they are. He exercises dominion in his sovereignty by employing the sun to rise afresh every morning, as the, as the psalm writer or psalmist recounts the Genesis account, right? You know, I suppose the concept of time does much the same, I mean, time is a really, you want your head to hurt, ponder time. I, some, I don't know, I'm weird. Sometimes I like my head to hurt like that. But, you know, but it's paradoxical, right? It's a paradox. You know what paradox is, right? 
The created order doesn't actually speak in words, but yet it speaks to us, right? We don't hear it per se. There's not speech, and yet the created order both tells and tells not, right? Doesn't it? It speaks to our intuitions, to the very core of who we are, that there is a glorious God who created the world and everything in it, but its message is limited. It cannot tell us all we want to know about God, nor can it tell us all that we need to know about ourselves. And it confuses us as it tells its story, doesn't it? You see a beautiful sunrise or sunset. You see the rolling hills and you ponder, what a glorious creation this is. And yet we have a blizzard or a hurricane that seem to speak a completely different voice to us, don't they? Come out of nowhere. And no one, no one can get out from underneath the weight of pondering God in the created order, the heat of the sun, as the psalmist says. Even the greatest Enlightenment philosopher, Immanuel Kant, from the end of the Enlightenment period in the early 19th century, an agnostic at heart, he couldn't make sense of life without God. I was thinking as I was preparing for this, maybe he read Psalm 19 when he wrote, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the ofter and more steadily we reflect on them the starry heavens above, and the moral law that's within. The categorical imperative for you and philosophers out there of Immanuel Kant, why do the stars give me pause to reflect? Why do I have a conscience that convicts me in morals that we all should live by? I can't prove that he exists, but life makes no sense without God the Creator. They all acknowledge, as the psalmist says, the created order, which provides a message about the Creator. But it cannot vocalize the truth that we need with speech. And yet God's unapologetic about that in Scripture. Creation provides a voice to all people, leading all to search for their Creator and Lord. Paul, Apostle Paul, likely referring to Psalm 19 in his really comprehensive theological statement in his letter to the church in Rome, as he gives us the programmatic statement, the righteous shall live by faith, he immediately goes into separating out three different people groups in their sin. And he starts that section with this. Chapter 1, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, sinners, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they're without excuse. All mankind is without excuse for their sin and the acknowledgement of the Lord just by living in the created order. But the creation isn't the only voice of God. He reveals so much more to us in His Word, which moves us to the second part of this message and the second voice of Psalm 19 and the voice of the Word in perfection. You know, in today's world, half-truths abound. Everyone seems to have an agenda, right? A political persuasion or a purpose as a slant reality to fit a particular narrative. An enlightened perspective, I might say, from an enlightened but sinful minds. And while it's debated, much of the news that we receive is even from our most trusted and desired sources, regardless of your political persuasion, is fake. Right? We live in a day and an age when truth's open for debate. Voices can't be trusted. By way of illustration, in 2017, Writers Institute of Oxford University in the UK studied thousands of responses across nine different countries, including the United States, and they produced this 40-page report. Seeking to answer the question, can the news media be trusted? Can the news media be trusted? From this study, they observed that in the United States, media outlets are seen as taking sides, encouraging polarizing opinions, withholding information, 
creating false narratives and partisan opinions by obscuring facts and manipulating understanding. Not surprisingly, this may come as no surprise to you, but in this particular study from 2017 at Writers Institute, 40% of people polled, only 40% felt they could trust the news media to separate fact from fiction. And if you get your news by social media, it's even worse, according to this study. Only 24% of people trusted their social media sources for proper news and facts. You see, for most of the world, morality is relative or changeable, contingent on sinful human preferences and not divine moral judgments and commands. For our world, in our world, righteousness is living your truth as you perceive it. And all things are permissible for the individual, really, as long as you, in actuating your personal preferences, don't interfere with somebody else's ability to actuate their personal preferences. That's the world we live in. As, as all individuals seek their own happiness. What's the psalmist's answer to the question? What laws and moral values should the world live by? Back to the text, verse 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than fine gold. Gold, even fine gold, sweeter also than honey. <clears throat> in contrast, Joe Klein, an American political commentator, wrote an end-of-the-year commentary for Newsweek magazine a couple of years back entitled, The Values Vacuum. The Values Vacuum, which I think speaks into our current situation. In the article, he observes that in our country, after about 30 years of espousing values of honesty, hard work, and self-denial, really our great-grandparents' age, you know, I mean, I'm old, but great-grandparents talking, you know, 30 years of that espousing those sort of values. So now what's happening is we're waking up with a tremendous hangover in a values vacuum, a cultural hangover. In the 60s and 70s, what happened? Americans binged on sex and drugs and society woke up with unwanted babies and disease. In the 80s and 90s, binged on materialism and spending that hasn't been paid for. And now we wake up with increasing debt and buyer's remorse. In our current cultural moment, people value individual sexual and identity freedoms as primary and feign real concern for neighbors with a continued, if not increased, vigor for consumption of our world and its people over and against investment in and for it. Do you agree? Unlimited freedom with values in a vacuum. Freedom with a void in a collective societal ethic for the sake of the individual's ability to consume and choose. To help explain further in studying for this message, I engaged several different Bible commentators. You know, I've, I've listed a couple of secular ones. We certainly don't want to make meaning, but sometimes their description is helpful. We don't want to make meaning from necessarily from their conclusions. Christian Bible commentators have, you know, have some teaching on value judgments as well, which is really helpful. And so some of what's going to come out right now is from those commentators and is not my own. In our world we make value judgments based on three things, really. Number one, expectations. Number two, emotions. Number three, ease. Expectations, emotions, and ease. So let's unpack those a little bit in turn now. The first question the world asks when it decides if something is moral or good or appropriate 
is what is everybody else doing? Particularly in my tribe, right? What's the people in my tribe doing? If they're doing it, it must be okay, right? If everybody's doing it, it must be okay. Expectations. Number two, emotions. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. Just do it, as Nike would have us believe. Live your best life. Be authentic to yourself. It feels good and seems to make you happy and gives you the freedom you desire. Just do it. Must be okay. And finally, then, ease. The way of the least resistance. The way of the least effort. Maybe the way of the least confrontation. You know, and some have conflated love into this equation. Conflated love into this equation. You know, as kind of a situational ethic. Like my ethic changes. I'm going to love and what I think is moral and correct is going to change kind of with the wind. Just do the loving thing and it'll be moral. But you see, love is meaningless without controls. It's just not specific enough. What's your definition of love? What's mine? What's your neighbor's? What's your enemies? You know, for some people, loving is legal and over-restricting. For other people, there's no restrictions at all in love. If you're loving somebody, you just let them do whatever they want to do. Doesn't matter. Love's not specific enough. By way of application, what are we to do when the world value with what the world values and the law of God teaches are so far apart? How can we bring about change as Christians in a culture that seems so lost? Well, let me suggest from the start that we must acknowledge moral values that must be based on universal moral absolutes. Yes, friends, the law of God matters. The law of God matters. But moving forward as the church attempts to influence our world and culture for good, for good we'll do good, we'll do, we'll do well if we approach that task with both truth and grace. Let me explain further. You see, the word value has a slant to it. The world in which we live isn't completely mistaken. You see, when we place a value on something, when we value something, we are assessing its worth, right? It's always done individually and is individually dis discerned, you know, which is just part of the reason that it seems to me that demanding a pagan country follow a Protestant set of rules when so many find no value in it will never work. It'll never work. Friends, there's a considerable difference between Christians being advocates for the law of God and demanding it from their culture. Values are subjective and will be much more effective at building the kingdom of God in the here and now with persuasive living, empathetic, sacrificial loving, and grace-saturated praying. Moving forward in 2023, I hope you agree that we should do our best to persuade the world to love what we love to see the grace and mercy of the gospel as much as, the, as much as the truth of God's law, to show them a better way by our actions and words, not by force or coercion or by demanding a way of life much of our world neither knows nor values. Friends, moving forward helpfully in our world will require God's people to behave more like Christ in action and relate to God's law more like the psalmist does at the end of Psalm 19. Ernest Shirtliff was a 19th century hymn writer. Dave's smiling. I, that makes me happy. Um, 
In 1888, he seemed to have his finger on the pulse of our moment moving forward in this timeless message of biblical grace. I'm going to read the second stanza of the hymn. We're going to sing it after the sermon. Uh, and I thank Paul for flexing on that. This is Lead On, O King, Lead on, o King Eternal. And we've sang it here before, you may recall. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords, loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. With deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Our world needs God's truth, friends, and law, yes, but it also needs our mercy and our sympathy and Christian love. For we know, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19, that in contrast to the values and laws of the world, the Bible says the law of God is perfect, altogether, and completely righteous. And this word righteous, translated in English to righteous in the Hebrew in verse 9, that word actually means in the original, completely straight, a straight measuring rod. Perfectly straight. In all, we find in Psalm, the second voice of Psalm 19 and 7 to 10, is God directing us in a different direction, a narrow and straight path, diametrically opposed to the compromise, insincerity, and half-truths of human discourse and values. What, what is this book? What is it? Why should we read it and reread it and study it and embody it and trust it and do what it says? Why? Because it's the very Word of God. And God the Holy Spirit wrote it for God's covenant people because God the Father loves us so that Jesus can commune with us. The Bible's not an antiquated set of opinions from a bunch of old men from years past that seeks control and power, but truth writ large for the people of God. How do we know? I mean, how do we know based on Psalm 19? I'm trying to pull from directly from the text. How do we know from Psalm 19? Well, look at verse 1, the glory of God, G-O-D. That is in the Hebrew, El, which is the, is, which is the powerful God in its description and definition that creates. Notice as we go to verse 7 to the end in 14, seven times, how is God referred to? Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Lord, Yahweh. The covenant God, the relational God, the God of steadfast love, the God that tells Moses on the hill, I'm your God. What should, Moses says, what should I, who should I tell them that you are? I am what I am, he says, Yahweh. I'm the steadfast love God. He wants relationship with us. He gives us this book because he loves us. And he wants us to follow it. God gives us his law and all the teachings of the Bible because he loves us and he wants, us to, he wants to communicate that love to us for us, to help us relate to Him, come to Christ, relate to to each other, and flourish as a society. You see, when you base your moral values on anything other than the absolutes of God and His character, at best, at best, it's theoretically shallow. And as we're seeing in the morality of our world, it's also unsustainable in experience and ultimately will fail. Why doesn't our society work? Why are so many people angry and depressed? Because we're making up the rules as we go, aren't we? But make no mistake, friends, no one's going to follow the law of God unless they understand why they have it 
and they value it so that they can obey it. The people of the world may run on by with theories of love and freedom and societal flourishing through sinful human reasoning, but the only straight edge of righteousness is from the Lord. Moral absolutes, you see. We need them. The world's in an impossible situation without them. You might say at this point, well, it's too restricting, Chris. The Bible's too demanding. You know, I've got to have some sense of freedom, right? Well, friend, you need to know that submission to God's moral absolutes does not enslave you, but it actually liberates you. What's the text tell us, right? The second voice, the law revives the soul. It makes one wise. It leads us to rejoice in our hearts, to walk a straight path with truly spirit-endowed and enlightened eyes. Our modern world says to have to submit to authorities repressive and bad. If something restricts my perception of my own freedom, it can't be true or good. Our world says, but you see, friends, real freedom is always, real freedom is always found in restrictions, the Bible and common sense. A life without restrictions always leads to despair, which may be at least part of the reason why we're suffering so much in our current cultural moment. Let, let, let me give you an extreme example. You guys following me? Let, let me give you an extreme example to help illustrate here, and I hope you'll find some levity and humor in this. I like to swim, kind of. But let's just say I really like to swim, and I'm a really good swimmer. I'm like, you know, Olympic kind of caliber swimmer. And so I decide in my freedom that I'm going to swim across the Atlantic Ocean unassisted. I can do it. I know I can. I'm a swimmer, right? Maybe I'll put a backpack of a couple sandwiches on and <laughs> head out to get across the Atlantic Ocean. What's going to happen? I'm going to drown and die, but I'm going to do it free. I'll be free when I do it, right? And I hope that my family and friends, uh, church brother and sisters, might be there for me in my foolishness and freedom, right? To throw me a life preserver, to save me, to refresh my soul, to bring joy to my heart. Friends, God does that when He restricts us with His law. He rescues us from ourselves and each other. God always restricts the people He loves in the hope of liberating them. From the very beginning, God did it in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? You remember? He puts them in the garden, two commandments. You can eat all this stuff, just don't eat from that tree. Eat everything, it's awesome. Don't eat from that tree. What happened? You know, after Satan tried to convince Eve that God wasn't God and that she wasn't good enough, which Dave helped us realize is him and the accuser in one of his previous messages just recently, right? What happened? She convinced Adam and they ate from the tree. Why? Because they wanted to be God and they didn't want to be restricted, right? You see, when we're in the right environment with the right restrictions, we thrive. When we're in the wrong environment with no restrictions, we don't. The moral absolutes of the Bible liberate us. They liberate us. And the Lord's not left us to uncertainties, friends, uncertainties that we find in the voice of nature, nor has He limited us to the sinful imaginations of how we should respond to the moral law written on our hearts and the conviction of our consciences, right? He's spoken His Word to us because He loves us. So what's our response? How do we respond to that? The law of God. You know, this question is answered by the psalmist in the third voice in part three of this message in the voice of the sinner praying. You know, you might be thinking right now, Chris, all right, the answer to that question is simple and pretty obvious. 
Let's just go back to the Ten Commandments and mean it in 2023. Let's just start reading our Bibles and insist that our friends and family and neighbors and everybody just start reading our Bibles and do the same. Question answered, case closed, sermon over, lunch served. (laughs) And we've done it in under 30 minutes. Yay! (laughs) Well, let me just say that the answer that God gives us in Psalm 19 is much more loving than that. It's much more nuanced. God answers our plight in a much more loving, sophisticated, and life-giving way than simply giving us rules to live by, theories, and laws to teach our children, and laws to demand that our society uphold and obey. Back to the voice of the psalmist as sinner, verse 11 to the end, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How's the psalmist answer in the text? What's the Christian response to the law of God? You know, it seems simple enough, right? We said obey. But we must, we must know that the commandments of the law and the Word of God will destroy us. Destroy us unless we come to them with proper mindset. You might be convinced, and I hope you are. You admire it. You love it. You want to study it. You're resolved in 2023 to obey it. But the law of God, friends, if we come to it wrongly, can destroy us. Let me illustrate to give you a point, uh, to, to help to illustrate the point. I think our wonderful worship director, Paul Vertucci, and his musicians would affirm that having a great singer or musician is a wonderful thing to have for a performance, right? It's a wonderful thing to have. But if the great singer or musician and the people that are part of the performance don't know their roles, it can destroy a performance, can destroy it, right? If we fail to understand God's law's purpose in our lives, it too can destroy us. Let me review briefly to get to the point. In the voice of creation, the first voice in 1 to 6, we see that nature is insufficient to get us into relationship to God. We can acknowledge there's a creator, acknowledge we're sinners and we need God, but it doesn't get us into relationship with God. In the second voice, verses 7 to 10, the voice of the Word, we find the perfect law given by the perfect God. You look at the Word, you look at His law and you say, He's perfect. In the voice of the sinner, we find the response. And we might say, as the psalmist does, I need God in my life. I need a new purpose, a new vitality. Life is hard. I acknowledge that. I want to obey God. And so you start going to church and you read your Bible and you try and you try and you try and you try to follow the law and be holy and loving and wise and gentle and powerful yet approachable and just. What happens? How does the psalmist respond? He looks at the law and he realizes, I'm a mess. I'm sick. And the law does that to us, all of us. You see, the first two purposes of the law, friends, are to crush us as it teaches us. The gospel of grace is for sinners, and Jesus Christ came to bring sinners, us, to God by faith in Him. We know deep down in our guts that we should be as good as the Word of God and His law command. And yet in our quest, in our quest to obey, if we think we're experts beyond reproach and condescending 
towards our friends, people in our culture that we disagree with, and others, we miss the point. And the proper life-giving response the Word of God provides, which can destroy us and our listeners. Recall Galatians 3 tells us that the law of God is like a schoolmaster. The law of God is like the schoolmaster teaching a big class of little kids, bringing them to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what the law does, right? Chapter 3, starting in 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. To 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, look at how the psalmist responds. After he acknowledges what a wretch he is, by looking at the law of God, How's he respond? He doesn't just say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm motivated. I can do it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to do it. No, what does he do? He goes to prayer. He says, I need my rock and my redeemer. As Christians, we receive the benefit of the law by grace through faith, saying, Jesus lived the life I cannot. You see, all human beings know we're supposed to be perfect. And so a part of the Christian life and the gospel of grace There's only two ways people deal with sin. We all know we're sinners. If you're a Christian, you say, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, I can't do it. Jesus Christ came down, the God-man lived the perfect life for me, died on a cross for me, which I received by faith. He's resurrected from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father, reigning today for me. That's the Christian ethos which leads to one response to the law. All other people groups, doesn't matter what you believe, what religion you are, they deal with sin in one of two ways. Firstly, they try to kill it, denounce it, walk away from perfectionism by comparing themselves to others. I'm better than most. I'm better than most people I know. They attack it, rationalize it, try to kill it. Secondly, they do everything in their power to be perfect. Everything you can do to be perfect, which destroys you. It drives you into the ground. Perfect body, perfect complexion, perfect sex life, perfect job and family car, most Instagram followers in the history of social media. If I just work harder, get up earlier, go to bed a little later in 2023, life's going to be a lot better and I'm going to be seven steps closer to God and greatness. Friends, Psalm 19 in the Christian life deal with our need for perfection differently. Christ has done it for us. The law of God is not a checklist for perfection, but a wellspring of life-giving commands from the God who is, who loves us, and who is not silent. And yet this doesn't give us license to disobey what God commands. It doesn't give us license to sin, but reasons to follow. For the third purpose of the law of God is to give the Lord glory and to help us flourish as individuals and a society, right? How do you know you love someone? How do you know? You begin to experience and desire the things that they desire. Your affections change for what makes you happy in life, right? You want to know what pleases the one that you love. And you desire to do what pleases them, not for selfish and self-serving reasons, but because you love them. Their wish becomes your command. Friends, you know you're in love with someone when your interest in providing them pleasure is greater than receiving it from them. 
Why should we read, study, embody, and obey the law of God and confess our sins? Why? Because we love Him. And we want to know Him. And we want to glorify Him so we can tell people about Him. Not because He'll owe us one, or because we can earn our way to heaven, but because we know and love God. God says, obey me, Christian, because I'm your loving Father, I'm your Savior, and I'm your friend. The immoralist despises the law of God. The moral legalist fears him, fears the law of God. But the Christian, Christian delights in the law of God because for her, to her, it's as sweet as honey. Edwards was right. There is a difference between knowing honey is sweet in your mind and tasting it. What's the greatest New Year's resolution anyone could make? NPC, let's taste the pure sweetness of God's Word in 2023. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.